This episode is brought to you in part by Palm Beach Atlantic University's fully online Certificate in Cultural Apologetics program. Learn how to show the reasonableness and desirability of the gospel from leading Christian philosophers. For more information, go to pbaapologetics.com. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And most of the time, I am Sarah Welch Larson. But Kevin, this week, I am the ghost of Christmas releases present. Are you, so you're going to show me visions of all the wonderful movies that are giving this Yuletide season its sparkle? I bring you good tidings of celluloid and theater releases. <laughs> Oh man, I'm looking forward to that. We've got two movies to wrap up and put under the tree for you this week, listeners. First up is Damien Chazelle's three-hour epic about the golden age of Hollywood, Babylon. And then next up, we're going with something a little bit smaller, maybe a more subdued package under the tree, but no less good. We are going to be talking about Hirokazu Koreeda's Broker on this week's episode, 363 of Seeing and Believing. Tell me, you miss the silence. No. Shouldn't stand in the way of progress. What are your thoughts for the future? We have to redefine the form. We've got to innovate. We've got to inspire. I promised you a sight. You're getting a sight. Welcome to the final episode of The Year of Our Lord 2022, episode 363 of Seeing and Believing. Last, but I'm hoping not the least, given the lineup that we're looking at right now. Yeah, I mean, at least one of the films we're going to be talking about today is a big behemoth of a movie. <laughs> so this will we'll at least be going out with a bang, I guess. I suppose so, yeah. A bang and then a, probably a quieter bang, a more emotional bang maybe, but I guess we can get into that when we discuss Broker in the second half of the show. Each film packs a punch in its own special way. We'll just say that. Hirokazu Koraeda's Broker is what we're going to be talking about in the second half of the show. But for now, let's turn our attention to Damien Chazelle's latest. Uh, this is a three-hour episode Epic about the silent film era of Hollywood, so it's a pretty big deal. It's got quite a cast. Here's the film's synopsis. Uh, this latest film from Chazelle starts out in a time and place that should be familiar to anyone who knows the 1952 film Singing in the Rain. In the late 1920s, in the waning of the silent film era, Chazelle introduces us to three characters. Brad Pitt's matinee idol, Jack Conrad, Diego Calva's callow assistant, Manny Torres, and Margot Robbie's would-be young starlet with the self-bestowed stage name of Nellie Leroy. Each of these characters is surrounded by the decadence and outrageousness of a Hollywood approaching the height of its mystique and glamour, and each of them will see their stars rise and fall with changes in the industry and the world, not least of which is the advent of the talkies. 
At first glance, this might sound like the latest film to celebrate the bedazzling magic of the movies, a la 2011's The Artist, but the film's scope and three-hour running time are the signals of Chazelle's loftier ambitions. Babylon is interested in exploring many ideas during that runtime, but one of the central questions it asks is common to every one of Chazelle's films, from Whiplash to La La Land to First Man, and that question is, what is the price of greatness. So let's start there, Sarah. How satisfying did you find Babylon's exploration of that idea? That's such a great way to put it um, about Chazelle's work. I've been on his wavelength before up to a certain point. Um, This one feels as though it's grasping at greatness and the reach is so outsized that you get a really good sense for Chazelle's ambitions. But the result feels as though it's an over like it's an attempt to reach around and bite down on something that is too big to be bit down on and the attempt also feels a little bit too large for what it's trying to get at at the same time everything feels just so big here that i think the greatness gets lost in the sauce um (laughs) Which really bums me out because for a little while, at least in the midpoint of the film there, I think I was starting to get on Chazelle's wavelength. Um, This movie starts off with a bang and it tells you exactly what it's about and how it's going to be about it, which is kind of, we're going to get into the gross nitty gritty layers of what it was like to be in Hollywood in the silent era before the backlots were even a backlot. They were just tents out in the middle of, of fields somewhere. And I appreciated the way that this movie felt as though it was getting about Hollywood trying to kind of clean up its act and become the great thing that it had always been claiming to be. And then the movie kind of takes a turn. And I couldn't quite see where that turn was coming from. And I couldn't quite get where Chazelle was going with it, largely because he's making a lot of these allusions to classic Hollywood, both the silent era and then also like classic golden age Hollywood, including Singing in the Rain, which we should definitely get into. And once the allusions turned into something that was a little bit more overt, where Chazelle was telling us the reasons why he was alluding to those movies, he kind of lost me. It felt as though he was trying to tell us why Hollywood was great, why his attempt to tell us about early Hollywood was great, and then why his own movie was great and in a line of greatness. And for me, that equation just didn't quite add up. So mm. I'm, I'm curious to know what you thought and how you came away from this film. Yeah, I mean, it's a big swing. And like you, I wouldn't say it's a big miss, but he only clips the ball, I think. <laughs> um, it, and, and he fouls it into the stands. It's, it's, an, it's an intermittently successful movie. Chazelle's a fantastically talented director. Mm-hmm. And anyone as talented as he is, particularly with the way that, with how good he is at putting together just wonderful sequences, there are a lot of individual sequences in this film that just are riotous and uh, propulsive in in all the right ways. I don't think it all hangs together, though. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I think the the movie that I was thinking about the most as a kind of point of comparison while watching Babylon was 
Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, hmm. which in its own way is about a lot of the same things. Boogie Nights is about, of course, the the heyday of another film industry. This, In, in this case, it's the porn industry of the 1970s and 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's kind of got a very similar structure where we start out kind of in this very energetic, glitzy, uh, uh, fun milieu where you know everybody's excited to be working on what they're working on they all think they're doing something great Mm -hmm. and they um there's this mythology that they sense themselves being a part of that's just exhilarating to them and then in the second half of the film it all kind of begins to crumble and that mythology begins to reveal itself as uh maybe more of a delusion <laughs> or or at least something much smaller and sadder than uh, the, the headiness of their self-mythologizing maybe led them to think it was. Babylon follows a similar structure. The big problem I have with it is that I'm not sure that Chazelle really gets that, that balance right in evoking both periods with equal discipline mm. um the he's he's great at evoking kind of the the wild riotous world of you know decadent hollywood where you know the parties are crazy the the swing music is hot you know everything is hopping and then in the second half he, he kind of does want to bring it down a little bit and have a more sober perspective on it all the problem is i think he still is in he's kind of in love with it mm-hmm. i in in short i think that Chazelle is buying into the same mythology that his characters are buying into. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson has a much more mature perspective on both halves of that structure. And uh, I, I just think Babylon, it's its just like you said after we came out of the screening, it's, it's high on its own supply. Yeah, it very much is. And I find that kind of disappointing because it feels as though Chazelle is trying to convince maybe himself, definitely the audience of the greatness of old Hollywood, silent Hollywood. And it kind of feels as though he's trying to get at the idea of old Hollywood and like golden age Hollywood after the talkies became really prevalent. I think he's trying to convince himself of the greatness of those movies as well, but he's not as convinced that they are quite as good. And yet he's presenting them as being in kind of a long line of a storied cinematic history, which is a little bit ridiculous in its own right, because Hollywood had only been around for a couple of decades by this point. And then layered on top of that, I don't know if this is something that you read into the movie or not, but the way that I felt, especially toward the end, it almost felt as though Chazelle was writing a eulogy for cinema as it is today specifically the experience of going and seeing a movie physically in a movie theater. It feels as though there's kind of this, I don't want to call it a trend because I couldn't tell you exactly how many movies are doing this, but at least at the very least in critical discourse and in conversations with filmmakers, it kind of feels as though everybody's decrying the advent of the streaming era as well and the insular nature by which a lot of people watch movies. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad way to watch movies, although I genuinely love going and seeing them physically in the movie theater. But the way that Chazelle is treating the death of the silent film and the kind of riotous 
anything goes heyday of we're going to go do everything we possibly can, throw it all at the wall, see what sticks, and then work with that. That death of that scene almost feels as though Chazelle is also treating it as just the death of cinema in general. And I can't help but wonder if he's thinking about the death of silent film as also being just the death of movie theaters in general. I don't know if that's a little Hmm. bit too out there of a read, but it's kind of where I've been coming away from this one as. It's funny you you, you bring up kind of that that idea that it's it's a eulogy, because I'm not sure eulogy would be what i took away from it hmm. so there there's a, a climactic sequence in this film uh, without giving away too much one of the characters kind of returns to his old stomping grounds after having kind of been at the at the top of it all uh during the you know the heyday of the 20s and 30s he returns a couple of decades later and he catches a screening of singing in the rain in the theater with the audience and uh Chazelle crosscuts uh, this this almost abstract sequence in, into the uh, ex- the shots of him watching the film. He intercuts uh, shots of uh, other f- other films throughout film history. So like you know everything up to Jurassic Park, you know, gets a mm-hmm. little bit of a shout out there. And then there's kind of this um, even this shift to abstract just colors on screen mm-hmm. and it, it re- reminded me a lot of the abstraction at the end of 2001 a space odyssey mm. and in 2001 a space odyssey yes death is kind of part of that beyond the infinite sequence but it's not so much death as evolution like in in, in that final passage of 2001 humanity is changing into something else Hmm. and i think that is sort of what chazelle suggesting with his final sequence as well is that um it's not so much the death of film when they move from silence to talkies or from theater going to streaming but it's changing and there there are things that are lost in that i guess and there are things that are maybe gained it's it's interesting that, that the way that final sequence kind of suggests that there's so much contained in the in just the the simple pleasure of sitting and watching Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. you know, which is a light movie. It's fun. Um, but the way the sound work is just so overwhelming during that chaotic abstracted sequence. And then it tones right back down to almost like a whisper of Gene Kelly singing the title track in the movie theater. Mm. That... I think that's Chazelle signaling that so much can be contained in just the experience of watching one movie um, that that's part of the greatness of movies in general is that there, it's just it's so much bigger than the sum of its parts. It's a great final sequence. I wish the rest of the film had had lived up to that. But I think there's a lot of interesting things that Chazelle's kind of picking at with this exploration of you know, what films mean, what they do, and what it means to love them and try to try to be part of them. Hmm. Um, I don't think that he's successful, I guess, <laughs> in carrying that through in all parts of the film, though. I like that read of that final movie going sequence because that sequence really did not work for me. Oh, all. really? Yeah, no, it, it felt as though... Chazelle was trying to make very explicit a lot of the stuff that he had been alluding to up to a certain point. Um, there are a lot of threads of Singing in the Rain here, like you'd previously mentioned. Um, and 
I think the movie is at its strongest when it's not explicitly pointing out and saying, hey, do, do you remember this scene in Singing in the Rain? I'm going to recreate it slightly differently. And if you can recognize it, then you're a true cinephile, which is kind of what this felt like it was doing mm. in different places. There's a sequence where a bunch of different actors are up on a soundstage and they're all singing the title track of Singing in the Rain. And it feels like something that I've seen before, but isn't quite exactly the same thing. And then there are other scenes that mimic additional sequences from Singing in the Rain. So Margot Robbie's character, Nellie Leroy, is a silent film star who is very magnetic on screen when she's not speaking. And then she kind of has this voice that a lot of people around her don't seem to react particularly well to. So with the advent of talkies, she finds herself having a difficult time transitioning to needing to hit her marks and speak only into the microphone and have a voice that people think is more aesthetically pleasing. And that feels very much like that subplot in Singing in the Rain as well, where they're trying and failing miserably to adjust to having microphones on set. And then there are other additional sequences in Singing in the Rain that just kind of get thrown in here, partly because it just feels like it's an homage to a movie that is also an homage to previous film history. And I, I feel like Chazelle likes that layered quality, but I couldn't really quite get at why he kept returning to this movie more than all the others. There are a lot of other movie illusions here. And... Um, when we finally get to see the actual poster and the marquee and actual scenes from Singing in the Rain, you know, surprise Gene Kelly, I guess we get that <laughs> a little bit <laughs> in um, Young Girls of Rochefort, which we talked about a few episodes ago. It is very nice to have surprise Gene Kelly, but at the same time, I felt as though Chazelle was repeating what he had already told me multiple times before when he trotted out the footage from the original film. And by that point, I was kind of just wishing that I was watching the original Singing in the Rain and not seeing a lot of allusions to it. And then, oh, here you go. I guess you can also watch a bit of this movie as well at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's... There's a certain... I'm trying to think of of a way to say this that doesn't sound mean because mm. I I do genuinely I like Chazelle I like I generally like his films and I I appreciate that he has such obvious affection for films I mean mm -hmm. it, it came we saw it in La La Land too uh, here it's you know turned up to eleven and I think maybe it's that quality of being turned up to eleven that turned me off and sounds like it turned you off as well and will probably turn off a lot of people like there's a certain brand of cinephile or cinephilia that's just it's very in your face it's just like i love movies and i'm just gonna shove all of it at you at once mm -hmm. and that kind of maximalism at least in in the way that it appears in babylon just doesn't work for me at a certain point it it, it, it seems as if chazelle is kind of in love with movies but it feels like that might be the extent of what he loves. Like hmm. it, it almost feels like he loves the idea of movies more than kind of the way that uh, movies kind of like act upon the world and help it grow. Mm -hmm. Like he, he loves showbiz almost as much or more than like the, the pleasure of, of a, of an unexpected image or of a great story. Mm -hmm. And 
that I, I think in Babylon, there's just, it's not clear exactly what he loves. Like, does, does he love movies just for their own sake or does he love something through, does he love what movies show him? I guess <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm having trouble articulating what, what it is, but I, I think maybe the problem with Babylon is it's just, there's so much of it. It feels like you're drinking from a fire hose and that's just, it's not a pleasant sensation. And to be fair, I think that's very intentional on Chazelle's part. He doesn't want it to be kind of like this light, fizzy, mm-hmm. we all love movies yes. experience. But the I, I don't think he has full control over over what he's chosen to do instead. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, I think part of the reason why you're having trouble articulating how Damien Chazelle feels about movies, at least the way that he's expressing it in this movie, is that he doesn't do a good job of coherently expressing it in a way that is easy to sum up. And maybe part of that is that fire hose quality. But early on in this movie, we also get multiple people explicitly telling other characters why they love the movies. So Nellie Leroy, within five minutes of us meeting her, is down in the basement of this party snorting coke with Manny, played by Diego Calva. And she asks him, well, what, it, what is it that you're doing here in L.A.? What do you want to do? I want to be in the movies because I want to be part of that escape that I feel when I'm physically watching them. And then you kind of get almost the exact same movies as an escape uh, monologue from Brad Pitt's Jack Conrad, maybe 10 minutes later. And then it doesn't really go much beyond that. You You experience a lot of the chaos of the party, which is very wild. And then you get a lot of the chaos of shooting on set the very next day while everybody's hungover. And that is also a very wild, very different form of controlled chaos. And there's something very pleasurable about watching that semi-controlled chaos as it unfolds, especially on the backlot fields as different movies are shooting different scenes. One of them's a a gigantic kind of intolerance style battle sequence. There's kind of a slapstick um, barmaid dancing on the bar kind of sequence in another movie, and then at least two or three others that are all going on all at the same time. And you get the sense that Chazelle is in love with that sense of possibility, I think. But Once that possibility kind of spirals out of control, once you get that perfect shot and then all hell breaks loose again, that's when the movie kind of starts to lose me because I can't really tell what the gravitational center is of all of this besides that controlled chaos. And that's not really a particularly, it's a powerful force. I don't know that it's quite powerful enough to keep all of these different characters in its orbit, if that makes sense. Well, it seems I, I like how you say that it's not clear what the center of gravity in this film is, because I think that kind of hits on maybe it's it's big weakness is that it does feel like in some ways uh, Chazelle wants to both celebrate um, this era and critique it at the same time. Like, mm-hmm. look at the treasures, the, the cinematic treasures that this era gave us. All the the amazing craftspeople and creative people who um, came together to make this all happen, kind of orchestrate that controlled chaos into something wonderful. Uh, but also look look at kind of the human cost of it. I mean, at the in that opening party sequence, uh, there's a young starlet who 
uh, dies of alcohol poisoning Mm -hmm. or is at least incapacitated by alcohol poisoning. And it's kind of treated as a joke. Mm -hmm. But um, we we see that uh, during the filming of this big battle battle scene, an extra literally gets stabbed in the chest and dies just as an accident. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like Chazelle's is trying to highlight like there is a human cost to this, which is true. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also borne out in some of the subplots, for instance, with a uh, a black uh, jazz musician mm. who is forced to uh, compromise himself without giving away too much. He's forced into a compromise uh, in order to kind of even be accepted on screen mm-hmm. as as his white as his white counterparts are. And so, in those ways, Chazelle does seem interested in critiquing this era, but he also really can't resist the siren call of just making it look as awesome and fun and energetic as possible. Mm. And I think that's a problem. I, it, it, it leads to a tone problem where it's never entirely clear just how seriously we're meant to take this critique when it's almost treated as either a joke or it's kind of just like, oh, look at these scamps, you know, mm-hmm. spending money like water and and going nuts at these parties like it, it's not clear exactly i guess what the moral center of gravity of is of this film and that's a problem because chazelle very explicitly wants to deal with that especially in this in the second half of the film where he shows kind of a lot of these character stars falling mm-hmm. yeah and maybe there isn't much of a moral center in the first half just because a lot of these characters don't really have much of a moral center either other than themselves and the joy that they get out of making movies and then the joy that they get out of partying ridiculously hard whenever they're not physically in front of or behind a camera. Your mileage may vary on that. I personally found those party scenes to be kind of hellish, partly because I would also just have a terrible time at a party that wild personally. Um, But at the same time... There, there are bits and pieces here, and this is where I find the movie to be the most frustrating is occasionally there is a glimmer of that morality or this idea that some of these characters could be wrong or could be right at any one given time. And sometimes that shines through really clearly, and then sometimes it's kind of unclear what we're supposed to take from a specific scene. So... A lot of the stuff that really worked for me was with the jazz musician. Uh, character's name is Sidney Palmer. The actor's name is Giovanna Depo. Um, he's fantastic in this movie, I think. Um, he's yeah. also really great in the HBO Watchmen TV series from a few years back as well. Um, so it's good to see him getting good work. Um, I think his whole character arc works for me because that sense of... He has had to work so hard to get to the point that he is in order to earn even less of the respect of his white counterparts. And the movie never really loses sight of how hard that work is and how far he is willing to go without compromising himself. And the moment that he is asked to compromise, he says, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. And it's a smaller character arc compared to some of the other members of this ensemble. But it is one that did work pretty well for me. There's another character arc that did also work quite well for me. Um, the character's name is Lady Feiju. She's played by Lee Jin Lee, and she's actually kind of doing a little bit of a Mar- Marlena Dietrich kind of deal where um, she's perceived to be an outsider. She's definitely playing with a lot of different, like, interesting gender presentation tropes, I think, um, especially in her introductory scene in 
Babylon. Um, and it feels like it's a scene that's quoting directly from the Marlena Dietrich movie Morocco, where Marlena Dietrich shows up in a top hat and coattails and proceeds to sing a song and then kisses another female character. And Legion Lee's character, Fei Zhu, is doing kind of the exact same thing. And she seems to be smart about how she presents herself as the character seems to be smart about how she presents herself as a character amongst all of the other actresses and actors around her as Hollywood is starting to kind of form itself. And she's also smart about being an outsider in more ways than one. Um, and also maintaining a specific sense of self that I really appreciated. And it was interesting to watch her maintain that hold on herself, even as the movie and then the other characters around her in that movie begin to push her aside. Um, she proceeds to carry on an affair with another female character in the film and then is kind of un unceremoniously dismissed by a producer. And the movie takes its time with that in a way that didn't feel as though the character was fully being shunted off. It, it felt as though the movie was aware of, well, this is how things would have been back then. And I think that level of sensitivity was something that I appreciated as it was shown on the margins. I kind of wish that that level of sensitivity was shown with some of the other even more marginalized characters and the extras and the backgrounds and the party scenes, and then also with the main characters in the film too. Like there's that sensitivity, but it's just running through. It's not really encompassing the entire story, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that something isn't fully gelling here. Where are the, there are just these individual characters and sequences that do, that are thoughtfully presented and are interesting on their own merits and uh i i agree with you on pretty much all the things you brought up that you know each one of those subplots i think work i don't think in the context of the entire of the overall film that they really it's entirely clear how what larger fabric they are all fitting into here it feels mm -hmm. like they're all little pieces of fabric they're kind of haphazardly stitched, stitched together or maybe not haphazardly stitched together but maybe there's just there's uh, better overall design that just simply didn't it, it feels shapeless mm. um, for example that it, the character who dismisses uh, Lee Jun Lee's character for her affair with uh, another actress is uh, is Manny mm -hmm. and uh, it's he's also kind of part of a romantic subplot with the same woman that Lee Jun Lee's character is involved with mm -hmm. and yet the relationship between Manny and her is uh, kind of presented as a big romance. Like there, it's 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 a romance that is kind of hinted at in the opening of the film, and it's bookended by a uh, kind of a touching farewell scene mm -hmm. at the in, at the end of the film, and that feels like. It's it's difficult to square uh, how Chazelle presents that to us in a very sincere manner. That we're it seems like we're supposed to take that relationship very seriously, mm -hmm. and yet he is also in an integral part of ripping apart the uh, this relationship between these two women. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of an example of how Chazelle he is kind of telling lots of different stories all at once and weaving them all together into a big unified story or account or epic, however you want to frame it is just, it's, it's not 
he, he's not successful in doing that, which is unfortunate because, again, you want to give due credits to him for successfully presenting the smaller constituent parts. Altogether, though, I, it just doesn't hang together for me. Yeah, it feels like the glue that's holding it together is supposed to be that romantic relationship and maybe that would have worked if there had been a little bit more chemistry between those actors or maybe the writing had been a little bit more believable i'm not entirely <sighs> sure what's going wrong there but it feels as though the script expects us to root for these two people simply because they are two underdogs in hollywood who happen to be in the right place at the right time and they may or may not be interested in each other. But beyond that, there's no real reason for these two characters to continue to be in each other's orbit other than the plot dictates that. And I don't find that particularly believable. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if kind of a clue to how Chazelle is trying to um, work with this film is seen in Brad Pitt's character. So Pitt mm. is you know, this, this fading matinee idol um, who, you know, has his own, his own demons, his own problems. Um, and yet he's almost kind of like a, he, he, he reads a lot like almost a Fellini kind of character. Like you think mm. of La Dolce Vita or Eight and a Half, which is about this, this man who is, you know, he has great ambitions of uh, being part of a great work of cinematic art. And it, he's plagued by doubts about whether he, you know, has what it takes in order to bring that about. And meanwhile, he's kind of beset by the the allure of, you know, the party scene uh, around him, of, you know, women who, who he is attracted to but is completely incapable of, of truly loving. Hmm. Um, that, like, that kind of feels like it's in the air in Babylon as well. Just all these various characters kind of wanting to do something great, not sure whether they have the wherewithal to make it happen and um, are kind of caught up in this, meanwhile, this this hard partying lifestyle. That's like, it's there, <laughs> but it, it doesn't seem like Chazelle is able to kind of really nail the, um, like kind of the the spiritual malaise that you see in Fellini's film. And I, I, I don't know. I'm just not seeing it. Maybe it's the lack of doubt in these characters. So you've mentioned that these characters feel like they don't have the wherewithal. And I think that's in Fellini, but I don't know that that's in Babylon. Oh, okay. When we meet all of these characters in Babylon, they're all talking about all of the great things that they want to do and that they know they can pull off if only they can get the money to do it or get noticed by the right person or manage to bend the ear of some producer somewhere. But every single one of these characters is self-confident enough to know that they can pull off whatever it is that they want to pull off if they can get the resources to do so. It doesn't feel as though there's any self-doubt until they hit that downward slide. So there is a, a conversation between Brad Pitt's character, Jack Conrad, and kind of this... Um, She's, she's kind of a publicist, sort of a, a critic figure who's been lurking in the background ever since the early days of Hollywood. They have a conversation after his star has begun to fall where she tells him, you thought the house needed you, but it turns out it's all bigger than you are yourself. And I think that's when he finally realizes that he isn't capable of pulling off everything that he thought he was going to be able to do because he's no longer, you know, the big fish in a very small pond. The pond has gotten bigger than he has. And 
I think that's when that moment of doubt sort of gets introduced, but it's only for this one character and it's only for this one moment. And then he proceeds to behave as though he isn't dealing with any sense of spiritual malaise or despair in quite the same way that you might get in a Fellini. So I, I don't know. That's that's kind of how I was reading that. Yeah, it, 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 the that it, that's a great scene. And I think it, it ties in weirdly, even though it's, it is such a good scene, it ties in weirdly into my problem with the film in that the way that this critic speaks to uh, Jack Conrad in that in that scene is like, you know, you, you know, the, the house is bigger than you. It doesn't really need you. You'll kind of, you'll die and people will go on without you. The world will go on without you, but you'll live forever on the silver screen. Mm. And it's, it's kind of this, this moment, this paradoxical moment where it says, you know, you, you, <laughs> so much has been sacrificed and you're not going to, your death will find you and obscurity will find you, but the things you made will live forever. And I think that that's, that's kind of, it's a wonderful sentiment, and I think in some ways it's very true, and that's kind of what's magical about movies. But it also kind of, it's what I was talking about earlier with Boogie Nights, where it's that mythologizing impulse that Chazelle can't quite seem to tear himself away from. Um, it, it just, he can't kind of have that pee into the power of the movies and also really, like, the the critiquing impulse that's also faintly evident in Babylon mm -hmm. doesn't come through as strongly. And I think that unbalances it maybe. It's just like he wants to do both and he kind of faints in one direction, but at the end he's all in on immortality via art, even if that might kind of be a crock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the, the idea that it is actually a crock doesn't seem to occur to him as something to be seriously contended with. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you there. I don't know. Like, it feels kind of incoherent, but there's the, it's those flashes of coherence that come in between those more incoherent bits that, that keep me coming back. And I've, honestly, it's what made this movie so aggravating for me <laughs> um, because Chazelle just seems so wedded to the idea of grandiosity and fame and, oh, wait, maybe there's a dark side to that. But isn't all of this stuff that came out of it just so great as well? And I'm not quite sure that I can balance that because I don't think his view of that is balanced either. I think that's, I mean, I think that's why Whiplash might still be my favorite of his films because I think mm. he does manage that. You know, Andrew in that film, you know, he does achieve greatness at the end of the film, but it's almost a scene of like, of, of a descent rather than an ascent. Mm. Uh, you get that final shot of, you know, Paul Reiser's face, the father, the father's face, watching his son as he, you know, achieves kind of this next level of artistry but has totally destroyed everything in his else in his life in order to attain that kind of the look of of sadness and horror on his face. I think nails that balance that Babylon was maybe looking for and doesn't find that yes, he achieves greatness, but it might not have been worth it. Mm. Babylon seems to think like it is kind of worth it, and I'm not sure that I buy that. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like Chazelle's movies kind of flip-flop back and forth. So you have Whiplash where it might not be worth it, La La Land where everything was worth it, and then First Man where maybe it's not quite worth it either. I'm more on the First Man side of things, honestly. It's a little bit more subdued. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'll be interested to see where the pendulum swings back if the pendulum does swing back for Chazelle in the future. Yeah, me too. Well, listeners, that is our review of... 
Babylon from Damien Chazelle. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about with this movie. And uh, I mean, yeah, we could probably spend an entire episode talking about it. It's ambitious for sure. Mm -hmm. And if you have any thoughts about it after you've seen it, listeners, we're all ears. You can... Bend our ear on Twitter at SeeBelievePod or over email at SeeingAndBelievingCAPC at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to tone things down a little bit. We're going to bring it down with our review of Hirokazu Koreeda's film here in the second segment in a bit. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now it's time for the conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And, you know, something that all of you listeners out there are probably familiar with if you listen to all the way through to the end of every episode is that we are part of a podcast network. The Mm -hmm. Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network is... You know what gives us our home, gives us our producer. It's mm-hmm. it's a good it's a good deal, um, and what makes that network possible is our members group. So for five dollars a month, uh, you can join the Christ Pop Culture members group um, that helps support the website, helps support the the podcast network as a whole, and it also gives you access to a few perks. One of which is. Uh, members forum on Facebook, members only, very exclusive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's actually a great place f- for uh, the conversation to happen maybe in a different forum. So mm-hmm. so we heard from Scott Garbaz um, over in that members forum, and he actually wanted to talk about uh, Pinocchio, which we, Sarah, you and I talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Great movie or good movie with, I, I have, I mean. With caveats. I have, I maintain that there are some flaws, but gorgeous looking movie and also one that's really fun to think about which apparently scott had a lot of thoughts scott scott had thoughts and you know he had some caveats as well uh he was he was positive on it overall but you know had some had some mixed thoughts as well he wrote a really wonderful and lengthy post that i can't quote in full but i wanted to kind of quote part of it because i thought his thoughts were really interesting. He says, in part, I still weep for the younger Geppetto, full of faith in God's order at least, but I love an older Geppetto who is able to continue to hope for the resurrection, capital R, of his first son while loving his second. I love the way Del Toro's film ties into history. After bombers blew up his first kid in church and priests and parishioners rejected his second, where's the space for faith in the transcendent? Hmm. Certainly Geppetto seems infinitely better than the other two major options of natural parochial affection or unnatural fascist organization, but I want the heavenly applause from the end of Pan's Labyrinth, even if it's probably just a dream, or the shape of water. I want the forces of evil looking at some hated, despised creature from beyond and saying, my God before the innocent are vindicated and the unredeemable finally punished. Hmm. I want true justice, not the cricket's world-weary acceptance that good boys get bombed, there, there, and then not. I want that hope, that resistance, that acknowledgement that sin and death truly are enemies and should be destroyed. So the context for those comments was that he, he liked the film overall. He was a little bit dissatisfied with uh, the cricket's kind of, you know, some things happen and, you know, then 
that's all there is. Mm-hmm. He was kind of hoping for a little bit more of a sense of the numinous, I guess, from Del Toro, which is a fair point, I think, and one that I think we may have talked about a little bit on the episode. Yeah, we did. I love Scott's observations about the movie, and I don't know, I, I feel like, Scott, you got at some of my dissatisfaction with the movie a little bit better than I probably did, honestly. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it feels as though... Pinocchio, Del Toro's Pinocchio is so wedded to the physical and maybe that's kind of an extension of the medium that it was made in that there is a sense of the numinous in bits and pieces like in places especially with the the spirits and and the manticore at the end of, of time but at the same time those are all bounded by something and they almost seem physically bounded by their own shapes as well and so i wonder if if that sense of the numinous is something that's just not quite possible at least in this version of that medium hmm that's interesting thought i hadn't thought about that way but thanks again scott for uh eliciting that uh that train of thought and thanks for for those provocative thoughts i really enjoyed reading them yeah thank you scott we also heard from some of you on Twitter. So, Kevin, you are no longer on Twitter. No longer on Twitter. <laughs> You're free. Um, if I'm free, I'm free at last. <laughs> <laughs> there are no strings on you. Um, but uh, I am on Twitter. And uh, every week I like to ask listeners a question um, just to keep that conversation going, keep us thinking about some movies. So this time uh, I just went with something super simple. It's nearly Christmas, so we'd like to know what's your favorite Christmas movie? And Kevin, we got a lot of really good and interesting answers. Um, Some of the ones that you probably would expect. So you do get, you know, your Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeers. I was kind of thinking about Charlie Brown Christmas when I was writing this uh, question as well. But we got a couple of really good, unusual ones too. So Deja Payne responded with, depends on the mood, but overall it might be one of these four. And the answers were Eyes Wide Shut, Night of the Hunter, Gremlins, and Batman <laughs> Returns. Oh, Gremlins and Batman Returns are both fantastic answers. It's an excellent double feature. I'm a Night of the Hunter person myself, and I maintain that that's a really good Christmas movie. So, yeah, I'm I'm on board with all of those picks. Hmm, interesting. So... Because you're not on Twitter, you do still have to answer this question. You just have to answer it in person. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know that I have a particularly interesting answer. I'm, I'm kind of basic in that way, I guess. It's a Wonderful Life for me all oh, the way. okay. Um, I've probably seen, because watching It's a Wonderful Life is kind of my only hard and fast Christmas tradition, I've probably seen it more than literally any other film. Mm. And I, I don't know, I love it as just as much every time and... Watching it that many times, I think it's just I see something a little new in it every every time. Hmm. I think it it you know it's kind of it's become such an institution that maybe people undersell just how well directed it is because I don't think it would hold up to that many repeat viewings with new things noticed every time if Capra didn't do such a great job of seeding little touches in there. So I like it a lot. Capra, one of the greats. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, it's funny. I'm actually the opposite of you. I've only seen It's a Wonderful Life once. Um, I didn't really grow up with it. So it was one of those movies where like, I knew about it from cultural osmosis, but it's one that I got to really late and was also very surprised by just how good it was when I did finally get around to it. So I think that's a great pick. Mine is one that I have seen on repeat quite a lot, though, and it's uh, A Muppet Christmas Carol, Mm -hmm. which I don't know what else there is to say about it. I think it's kind of a darling of the internet, especially right about now. 
Um, I just appreciate how much Michael Caine really commits to his role. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the better adaptations of A Christmas Carol, period. Um, And it does a good job of balancing the levity of the story with the extreme darkness in that story at the at the heart of the story as well and so that's just one that i like coming back to it kind of feels like good christmas comfort food i go back and forth sometimes on whether i think it's the best uh movie adaptation of a christmas carol but i don't go back and forth on one thing i think michael Caine is the best movie scrooge oh he's so great he's he's so good uh the definitive portrayal in my opinion it's a good pick yeah, it's it's a it's a good pick if I do say so myself. <laughs> so, listeners, the question does still stand. If you are interested in telling us um, a little bit more about your thoughts about Pinocchio, like Scott did, or if you're interested in telling us um, what your favorite Christmas movie is, you can reach out to us via email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail dot com, or you can tweet at us cbelievepod on Twitter. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. So, Kevin, you mentioned that we're going to be bringing things down a little bit <laughs> from the bombast of Babylon, and we're going to turn our attention to um, what I understand is um, a favorite director of Seeing and Believing, so Hirokazu Koreeda. I know we talked about Afterlife at the beginning of the year, so it kind of feels as though we're coming a little bit full circle. I haven't gotten back and, and listened to the Shoplifters review, but I, I understand that you are in the bag for Koreeda. I, I am definitely in the bag for Koreeda. I... I wouldn't say that I've loved every single one of his films, but I love the man as a whole. Like the just his body of work is great, and I'm always excited about a new movie of his when it comes out. So we might as well uh, go ahead and dive on into Broker, the latest from Hirokazu Koreeda. So Broker is set in South Korea on a rainy night in Busan. A young mother leaves her infant at a baby box at a church, and the two men working at the church that night happen to have a side gig selling orphaned infants to couples who cannot have their own children and who don't want to wait for a lengthy bureaucratic adoption process to go through. But the mother returns, and she insists on joining these two men as they search for a suitable couple to adopt her son. And along the way, they begin to form an unlikely family unit of their own. And I feel like that feels like a very simplistic summation of this movie, so I'm excited to get into it. But Kevin, first I want to know, does this family unit ring true for you? And is this a family that you would want to join on the road? I mean, I'm very attracted by the idea of just being related to Song Kang-ho. He just, <laughs> it, I, I think he's just fascinating to watch on screen and it seems like it'd be great to hang around with his character in this film who's, mm-hmm. he's just kind of a, a, a dry cleaner who's, just has very strong opinions about all things related to dry cleaning and clothes mending. So, um, yeah, I think that it's a it's a family that if I wouldn't want to join, I at least want to spend a lot of time around. Mm. And I think, you know, the, the amazing thing about Koreeda is that he does kind of cover, he, he's definitely got his own little corner of themes and narrative territory that he, he goes over again and again. You know, themes of family, of families by choice. 
of uh, people learning to to live together and just kind of enjoy the quiet moments of coexistence together. I mean, that's been part of his oeuvre since the beginning. And uh, Shoplifters, which is kind of one of his his big breakout films uh, of in recent memory, which is wild to think because he's been active since the nineties. <laughs> right. I mean, he 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 works pretty steadily, but um, Shoplifters is kind of a film that really vaulted him to international prominence in in a way that he hadn't been before. And Shoplifters, I feel like, covers a lot of the same narrative ground about you know families kind of thrown together by circumstance by choice mm-hmm. um and uh, again kind of unlikely families at that um and brokers definitely in that vein as well and yet there's something about it that's just so engrossing hmm. i really liked this film <laughs> maybe surprising nobody <laughs> um and i i think a lot of it just has to do with the way that Korea is able to just compassionately write these characters and direct his actors to give such a full-hearted performance of them that uh i mean i would happily watch 10 more movies just like this <laughs> um it, it they're variations on a theme but the theme is just so surpassingly beautiful that i'm i'm taking it every time i'm curious to know uh your thoughts about sarah since i i'm not sure i know you liked afterlife mm-hmm. but i'm not sure if you can properly be called a Cora Ada fangirl yet. Probably not yet. Probably because I haven't seen a ton of his movies. I did see Shoplifters when it came out and enjoyed it very much. And I noticed a lot of those similar themes that you were talking about from Shoplifters to Broker. This idea of found family and then also found family operating under the demands of a system that has allowed certain people to slip through the cracks, not through malice, but maybe through negligence or maybe through not having a system in place to catch people exactly when they need to be caught only just before or just after that moment of the fall. Um, I really appreciated that Broker is good at balancing tensions in a way that doesn't feel as though it's quite setting up just a lot of dichotomies across from each other, even though a lot of these characters are kind of thinking in terms of a dichotomy. And and I'm thinking primarily about the ways that different characters frame the question of why would we need to have a baby box in a society like ours today. So the baby boxes is a place where women can surrender their infants if they feel that they they can't care for them. And some of the characters in this film refer to um, our young mother, uh, Soyoung, played by Lee Ji-un. She leaves her baby at the baby box without actually physically putting the baby into the baby box. And A lot of people refer to this act as her abandoning her child, and then quite a few of them also actually say that she's thrown her child away. And it kind of feels as though different people frame the act in slightly different ways. Um, I think uh, another euphemism could potentially be like giving up your child for adoption, although I don't think that those words appear quite here in this movie. But there, there is this tension of giving up versus abandoning versus just straight up throwing away kind of along a spectrum. There are also other tensions between ideas about theft versus protection versus benevolence. So Song Kang-ho's character, um, as you mentioned, is a dry cleaner. And 
near the beginning of the movie, uh, a couple of toughs come in to like try to shake him down for some money, ostensibly for protection, but they're really thieving from him. And you can see how they're framing that question as this is protection and we're getting what we're owed versus him saying like, well, really, you're robbing me. <laughs> and I think that Coretta is really good at drawing the lines between those tensions without turning us entirely against one character or the other. Those two toughs are probably the closest that we get to any real villain in this movie. Um, there could have been another version of this film where the cops who are trying to track down Song Kang Ho and his counterpart as they try to um, find adoptive parents for the orphaned children that they, they've taken in. Those cops could have also been very easily like cartoonish villains, I think, because they're trying to track down these people. And at the same time, I really liked those two characters who are following this little like impromptu de facto family as they're trying to find another family for this baby. I really appreciated the way that Kareda was compassionate towards them as well. And it, it just feels as though everybody in this film is kind of wrapped up in compassion, even though they may not necessarily yet be ready to extend that compassion to somebody else. Kareda is a director um, of compassion and of grace, hmm. um, maybe more so than almost any other director any other director i mean the the closest analog i can think of are maybe the darden brothers where there's mm. just this you know a, a very modest kind of aesthetic you know he's he's not one for uh showy stylistic uh gambits um and his characters are you know ordinary people there there's not a whole lot of of showiness in his style and yet just like the Darden brothers, that gives him uh, the uh, the space to portray kind of ordinary everyday acts of grace. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's just as simple as um, one character coming to terms with his own abandonment as a child mm -hmm. and through the young mother he's been traveling around with, through her kind of gaining a little bit of peace and uh being able to extend forgiveness toward the mother he never met as well like that's just it's a wonderful little moment and i think the the way that Coreda presents that without um making it seem uh overly saccharine or sentimental is, is something of a miracle it's difficult to show good people acting good and uh um extending grace to one another like that's yeah that's it's hard to maintain narrative tension and uh momentum when doing that uh Kareda is able to do it and i think a lot of it has to do with his cast i think the performances are uniformly great across the board mm -hmm. i think also is just the um the the way that he's structured the various forces in this plot where none of them are in direct opposition to each other but they're it's they almost form like a triangle where they're kind of at angles with each other and they're mm -hmm. kind of maybe moving in the same direction but they're also at some point going to intersect and, and push against each other and something's going to have to give mm -hmm. those uh police officer characters that you mentioned who are tracking these two people kind of help leaven the the sentimentality a little bit by reminding us that the way that uh sang hyun the uh, the dry cleaner and Dong Su, his his assistant, the way that they you know are taking 
uh, this this child and shopping it around to adopt potential adoptive couples is human trafficking. Yes, like they're that's it, they're not just doing it out of the goodness of their own heart. They're doing it for the money. They are kind of doing it also to keep the child from growing up as an orphan. Mm-hmm. But it's more complex than just that. And I think that leavening of the their pure impulses with their slightly less pure impulses, as shown to us through the law enforcement officers, I think is kind of the secret to this film's success and kind of what maintains the interest is because you're never sure, even up until the very end, what what's eventually going to happen. Like, are, are they going to face the consequences for their action? And what would even the just consequences be uh, in, in their case? Mm-hmm. And you're not quite sure. And it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, the beauty of this movie is that the justice system isn't really entirely sure what to do with these people either because they are dealing with people who have fallen through the cracks. Like they are human trafficking a child, but they're also offering a service to parents who are unable to have children of their own. And they're also trying to find a home for a child who may otherwise not know a home like the way that you and I necessarily would. And... I love that I love that you use the metaphor of kind of a triangle as opposed to like right angle opposition with each other because all of these things are in conflict with each other and sometimes they work together and sometimes they don't and the ways that these characters interact with each other as they go on their journey this is also kind of a road movie as well as as uh Sanghyun and Dongsu um as they travel across Korea trying to find prospective characters that are going to be up to So Young's standards. Um, occasionally, the cops are going to be helping them out in, in their goals, or at least they, they feel as though they are working towards helping them out in their goals. And on one level, that's because they want to entrap them into, you know, catch into catching them into like actually selling another person. But on another level, it feels as though these these cops are also allies in a sense that they also want what's best for this child and for other children who might be in a similar plight. And it feels as though this is a very small human drama where these characters are the only people that we're paying very much attention to, but it also feels as though they're part of a much wider, more expansive world where there are other people in a very similar situation elsewhere. And you could believe that this is something that could happen to just about anybody in the world of this movie. It's it's a pro-life film in the best way, in that just the value of people mm-hmm. is foregrounded. Yes. Um, there's a wonderful scene uh, towards the end where um, the the characters are all in a hotel room. They, they think they might have finally found a suitable... Uh, destination for for this for this young child Mm -hmm. um and they're kind of they're all lying uh in the dark in this in this hotel room and uh so young the the mother is is sort of going around the room and and telling each one of them um good night i thank you for being alive Mm -hmm. and it's it's kind of starts off as sort of a, a silly exercise like just kind of like something she's she's doing just to do it but as the scene progresses, you begin to realize she really means it. And then you, be, or at least I began to realize I really mean it. Like, I'm <laughs> glad all of these characters are alive, even if it's only just in the world of the fiction. And I think that that's, 
the marvel of a, of a good film like this is that it kind of reminds you about how valuable the, these lives are and why it's so important that that you want them to succeed not because just they're the protagonist and the audience surrogate and just that's just natural mm-hmm. but because you just you desire their good and i think that i mean that's kind of a great way of illustrating kind of just christian charity mm-hmm. uh desiring the good of the other Coreda's films always make you desire that in some way and i think that's why i've love coming back to his movies Hmm, yeah i feel like a lot of these characters also inherently desire that good too i don't know if that's coreta like in in the script or if that's just a function of who these characters fundamentally are i think this actually explains a little bit of a, a scene that i wasn't entirely sure about while i was watching the movie so again also late in the film um sang hyun is uh suddenly just in a cafe with a, another child, oh, one that we haven't mm-hmm. seen before um, in the film. And we come to find out fairly quickly through context clues that she's actually his daughter. And I couldn't quite fully understand why this scene was there because we hadn't really heard much about her. I don't think we actually know of her existence right up until that moment. And she's kind of standoffish in the way that like preteen kids can be where you ask them a question and they'll just give you like a a monosyllabic answer because they kind of think that everything in the world is just in their own head. And so you, you already know what they're thinking because why wouldn't you? Um, And yet, I don't know. It it feels as though she, she, she understands how much her father cares for her. And yet she doesn't understand just how much of a great thing that is. And I think the wonder of it is that he only wants what's best for her and for her mom and he tells her so in so many words and I think she's a little bit put off by it and and she leaves um I wasn't quite sure what to make of that but I think that level of like fundamental goodness and and being grateful that the other person sitting across the table from you is alive like I think that that might be what he's getting at there I feel like I'm getting at that retroactively. So I'm, I'm curious to know if you got anything else from that scene. I loved that scene. And and a lot of it is because it would be easy to sort of dismiss a story like this as, as heartstring pulling. Like, oh, you know, there's there's a little baby who's in danger of being an orphan. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's it's all sentimentality. It, it, it would be easy for that to shade into being maudlin. Like, oh, Corey is just really just going for the easy targets, right? Mm-hmm. That scene, I think works so well partly because it shows not the abandonment of a child by its parent but almost the other way around the Mm. not not so much that the the daughter is intentionally abandoning him but just he can sense there's distance growing between them he can't do anything about it um there's he wants desperately to be close to her but he can't really bridge that gap Mm. and that's an extremely deep grief for him and he desires um, that closeness with her in the same way that a child would desire closeness with the the parent that they never knew. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that in bringing that inversion, Cora Ada is, is really, he, he's not making me like, oh, like a helpless young baby is just an easy person to whip up <laughs> sympathy for. Mm-hmm. He's showing that there, all of these characters at some level desire closeness with with other people and with their families and the ways in which that that desire can sometimes be frustrated or unable to be realized mm. is is it is a deep sadness it's a tragedy and that 
I mean, that scene just, you know, Song King Ho tears your heart out there because you can tell just how disappointed he is that she doesn't want to talk to him, Mm -hmm. that she's kind of got her own life now that he's not a part of anymore. And it's almost like he's losing her. Mm. Um, And it's a, it's a quiet scene and we never really, we never see the daughter again. He never talks about her again, but that, the, the strong impression of that scene lingers and uh, does so much to make you think about all of the other characters and kind of their own uh, little wounds or just, or hopes that they're nursing that they might never see realized and how you, you want to be tender to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, and I think that works because it is precisely because it is so understated. Like, like you mentioned, it would be very easy for a movie like this to be so maudlin. And I think a lot of it is because, um, I think, um, I think, uh, Coretta manages to not make it so maudlin because he's so understated and so focused on the, the realism of those emotions. Like it's not always going to be over the top. Right. And, He's also so focused on finding different angles on the same issue. Like he, he seems like he's very honed in on this idea of family and the things that you have to give up in order to give somebody else a, a good life. And then also the things that you feel as though you have missed out on because somebody else sacrificed for you. And I think that both of those two things are in lovely tension with each other precisely because he's not trying to get at it with a sledgehammer or from a single viewpoint. He's trying to get at it from a bunch of different angles. And and maybe that, I, I feel like that means that his, his choice of topic, like this idea of family and found family is so rich and rewarding because he is able to get at this from so many different angles. This movie does not feel remotely like shoplifters to me. And I, I think that that's also a strength of Coreda as a storyteller is that he's able to tell very similar stories with very similar scenarios, but from completely different angles. And I think completely different takeaways and even completely different tones. Um, I don't know. It makes me respect him as a storyteller a lot because he clearly has a lot of these ideas on his mind. And it's something that he's going to keep probably returning to again and again. And I like that he's not content to tread the same ground or push the same buttons, even in the same movie over and over again. I, I feel like the conflict is always just a little bit different every single time. Yeah, I wonder if some of that has to do with the fact that he doesn't just write and direct, he also edits his own films. Mm-hmm. And that maybe contributes a lot to the feeling that uh, of being drawn into these characters' stories is the way that he's able to... Um, through through the edit kind of number one control who you're looking at uh, during a scene and also just just control how how you know the point at which a scene ends and kind of the the beat on which we uh, conclude one scene move on to the next Um, he is able to exercise control over that and I think that pays dividends in that he finds just little notes that uh, make this story feel so much different from shoplifters, even though maybe on the page, the scenario seems so similar. Mm-hmm. I think of, you know, that, uh, scene in a Ferris wheel where, uh, Dong Su and So Young are, are together. They're, they're alone. Uh, Sing Yun and, and, uh, boy are kind of, are, are in a different car and they're discussing kind of how, 
her fears are that she's a terrible mother. That she's she's throwing away her her child, and that's kind of an unforgivable sin that she can never really come back from. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have a choice. And Dong Su, who is an orphan himself, who is abandoned by his own mother, um, is able to offer her a little bit of grace and reassurance in that moment. And but the way that Cora Ada shoots and edits that scene, for the most part, the camera remains on So Young's face. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't we don't see uh, Dong Su uh, extending this reassurance to her. We see her receiving it mm-hmm. and the effect that it has upon her and the way that uh, the camera is. Uh, her eyes are covered for a lot of that scene by his own hand. Mm-hmm. And so we only see the bottom half of her face. And Cora is just like leaves the camera very patiently on on her expression. We kind of are allowed to observe the subtle workings of, of her face in that moment. And I think that that's something that maybe another editor who isn't as intimately acquainted with these characters as the screenwriter and director would be. Um, might might have might have missed and it's just a nice old grace note Mm -hmm. yeah it also speaks to i don't know no matter how well you know somebody you're never going to fully be able to know them and so all you can do is be able to extend them that grace um i think um yeah it's just it's a lovely little character moment a lot of small lovely touches that i noticed there's kind of a running joke about the baby's eyebrows being a little bit thin (laughs) it's a funny film too it's It's a very funny movie and it doesn't feel like it it you wouldn't expect that going in, and yet the sense of humor is so gentle and so insistent at the same time and also genuinely funny that it just, it really works. Yeah. Well, listeners, we both obviously really liked Broker. It mm-hmm. is uh, going to be in limited release starting this weekend, so it'll probably be filtering out slowly to the rest of the country and will probably... Event- eventually will end up on streaming in some fashion. So whenever you do get a chance to catch up with it, we're very interested in your thoughts. You can always uh, let us know on Twitter or via email. Uh, But uh, that'll do it for this week's episode and this this year, the year of 2022. Last episode of the year. Yeah, last episode. I feel like we went out... Maybe not with a bang necessarily, but, <laughs> but on a on a good grace note. Yeah, great grace note, a, a double meaning there. Maybe like uh, grace in more ways than one. Um, <laughs> listeners, we are going to be taking off a couple of weeks here for uh, Christmas and New Year's, so we won't be back until 2023, where we'll come back in with a bang, maybe by sharing our favorite films of the past year with you on that episode. Uh, that'd be episode 364. But that'll do it uh, for this episode. We'll just wrap things up in a nice bow and put it under the tree for our listeners. I see what you did there. <laughs> Mary, God bless us, everyone. <laughs> Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next year on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.